Yeah, get those Bibles and turn to John chapter 8, if you would. Just want a real quick show of hands. How many of you know that family? Raise your hand. Yeah. How many of you don't know that family? It's okay. Yeah. What I love is the fact that you got a lot of people who have stayed. <laughs> and you also have a lot of new people. <laughs> it's really cool. Uh, I uh, was thinking about who would do that, and I just thought it would be a really good treat to see them again and see their family. By the way, they have four kids, but there's a fifth one in the oven there. You didn't get to see it, so they got a fifth one coming. Um, yeah, you, you might pray for them. They need God's grace. Uh, but be turned into John chapter 8, uh, because today we're going to be, again, remembering Jesus' resurrection and celebrating this risen Savior. Because, you know, we as Christians, that's like the defining thing about us. It's what makes us distinct from everyone else. That God came down, died, and rose from the dead. Like, we distinctly believe that. And we don't just believe it like in a spiritual sense or a metaphysical sense. We mean it in a literal, physical, historical way. We believe that Jesus died on the cross bodily was buried bodily and rose from the dead bodily. He's risen. And so we believe the resurrection. And it's not just something that we have to take on in silly, blind faith as if, well, it, the Bible says so, right? Like, the Bible says so, so we believe it. But it also tells us so many reasons why. One reason is, well, Jesus' own enemies, the people who wanted everything to do with killing him and, 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 and squashing his ministry, they acknowledged that the tomb was empty. It wasn't just Jesus' followers. His enemies said, oh, crap, the grave's empty. What are we going to do about this? And they come up with some lies. Not only that, but we also see that 11 of the 12 disciples of Jesus give their lives in morbid, horrible ways because they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, I heard this week uh, that uh, the Watergate trials proves the resurrection. Watergate, that massive conspiracy. You had people with a ton of wealth and power trying to sustain a conspiracy And they couldn't even keep it together. And here we have 12, like, fishermen, jobless, homeless bums following this Jewish guy throughout Israel, and they can keep a conspiracy together? Exactly. And then they would give their lives for that? No. Unless Jesus really was raised. Then you also have some other reasons. Like, you you look at the, the guy named Paul. You remember before he was Saul, or before he was Saul, right? He was, he was persecuting the church. He hated Christ. He wanted to squash this uprising, and all of a sudden, he becomes this really powerful minister of the gospel. Why? Because he says he saw the risen Savior. Then you also have Jesus' younger brother, James, right? Who thought the dude was loony his whole life. And James too, becomes this massive figurehead in the New Testament church. Why? Because he says he also saw the risen Savior. You don't have that kind of flip in life. And then we also know that Scripture tells us that Jesus also showed up to about 500 other people. And Luke says, yeah, when I'm writing this, they're still alive. I can, you want to go talk to them? Yeah, he saw Jesus risen. Come on. 
The easy conclusion here is what? He is risen? It's an obvious statement. He overcame the grave. He conquered death. He sucker punched Satan right in the nose. Punched his teeth in. That old vile snake. You know, have you ever noticed that snakes have no legs or arms? And Satan is a snake because he's been disarmed and defeated. Now, um, after that level of corniness, I don't know what you're expecting, but I will tell you that, that you probably shouldn't be expecting some fancy Easter sermon that's all about the fun and rainbows and unicorns of Easter Sunday, right? And, and the gladness of new life from this really comfortable, easy passage of Scripture I don't know why you would expect that, because every Sunday we talk about resurrection life, and every Sunday uh, I go hard. I don't just go hard on Easter Sunday, I go hard every Sunday to bring you God's Word as it is. And I'll just tell you this, we've been studying through the Gospel of John since before last Easter, so if you can't tell, time is running short before my retirement, and we just got to keep going through it. Just got to get through John, and we're in John chapter 8. And I'll tell you what, this passage ain't no daisy. It's not an easy one. It's a doozy. It's a tough one. And, and I, I hope that you can bear with this. Because as, as Brother Chris read, our risen Savior is, is offering something to us today. Did you notice what he's holding out to us? He's holding out to us what? Freedom. He's, he's offering us Freedom. Now, uh, oh boy, when you picture freedom, what, what, what comes to mind? When you, when you think about freedom, what do you see? Well, I, I know some of you probably see William Wallace with half his pa- face painted blue, and he's riding across the field in Braveheart, and he's shouting, they'll never t- they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Right? That didn't end well for him, though. Then... Maybe that's not your picture of freedom. Maybe your picture of freedom is like Chuck Norris. He's riding this chariot that's pulled by two bulked out eagles. And he's like got the American flag waving in the background. Is that freedom for you? Or maybe your picture of freedom is something a little bit more serene. Maybe it's, maybe it's some really nice land nestled under the, the shade of a mountainside. And, and you've got a really beautiful, nice little house there. And you can just picture the... The smoke billowing out of the chimney, and, and you can see the garden in the back, and the brook running by it with the kids running around and playing. Maybe that's your freedom. Or maybe it gets a little bit more personal for you. Maybe your freedom is the freedom from no longer struggling with such deep anxiety or such paralyzing depression. Or maybe your, your freedom is... is is no longer having to struggle with such controlling addictions to such destructive things like pornography and alcohol and drugs and, and people's applause. Maybe that's your freedom. Like, like let's just be real. Like, you, you may be enslaved to some habits that in the moment feel real pleasurable. They feel good. And in that sense, you can love that bondage. 
You can love that kind of slavery. But when you step back from it, from the pleasures of that, and you consider what happiness would be like without that form of bondage, I think you'd like to be free too, wouldn't you? So like if the opposite of freedom is slavery or or bondage, I don't think anybody would choose the latter. Would you? Would you choose to be a slave? Would you choose to be in bondage? Just raise your hand if you would. Yeah, I didn't think anybody would choose that. I take it for an absolute certainty that everyone in this room, deep down, wants to be free in the deepest, fullest sense of the word. You'd be, you'd be happy in your freedom. Not a slave to pleasant addictions. We all want to be free. And in John 8, 36, Jesus himself is saying, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Really free. That's what we're after this morning. Free indeed. Freedom in its deepest, fullest sense of its meaning. Jesus is holding it out to us this morning. How do we know? How do we know the invitation is for you and me? Well, the passage didn't start in verse 30. It started in verse 31. But if you can remember verse 30, these people respond to Jesus' message with what? They respond with belief. In verse 30, there are people that believe in Jesus because they hear his message. And then he starts talking to those very people who had just started believing him. You noted that in verse 30. Look. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. All right, so the rest of the dialogue is between Jesus and this group of people who just stated that they are believing in Jesus. And before we get into the text too deep, just Do you remember that? Yeah, we know how this passage starts, but do you remember how it ended? You remember what he read? Like this passage is actually a really sad and scary reality, is it not? Those who had indicated that they had believed in Jesus, at the end of this passage, they're calling Jesus demon-possessed and picking up stones to throw at him. Does that sound like belief? No. You know, and if, you, if you haven't been with us, we've seen time and time again that the, the author of this gospel, who is named John, he presents to us a kind of faith that is fickle, a kind of faith that is showy, that is, that is, that is fake. It's, it's a kind of faith that thinks it's okay, a kind of faith that thinks it's all right with the big man upstairs. That's just fine spiritually, but really it's a kind of faith, not the faith, but a kind of faith that's deceived, that is not actually right with God, that still is enslaved to sin, it's intolerant of God's truth, and Jesus calls him Satan's offspring. So, so I, I think that we should come to this with a, a kind of humility, a kind of lowness, and a readiness in our hearts to say, all right, well, I might not have this thing called faith right. Jesus, if you're going to be my Lord, I, I want you to lead the way. I'll repent wherever you tell me to repent, and I'll realign wherever I need to realign by your grace. It's 
kind of what this passage is supposed to do for us. Because these supposed believers are interacting with Jesus, and Jesus doesn't really have uh, much nice to say about them. But he does offer something that I think we all want. Remember, verse 31, if, he says this to those people. If you continue in my word, in other words, if you don't just simply indicate a kind of belief at the outset, but if you press on, if you abide in it, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. Oh, that's such a well-known saying, isn't it? We hear it all the time. It gets quoted by uh, inmates and hippies. It gets quoted by uh, politicians and lawyers. Because it's their liberation theology. Oh, if you only knew the truth about what really happened, I'd be free. Now, Jesus means that in no sense of the term. He's not talking about that kind of liberation theology. Jesus meant it for an entirely different kind of liberation. And to these new believers, Jesus makes a note about this. If you, if you continue in, if you abide in what Jesus says in his words, his teachings, his instruction, his commands, his warnings, and his admonitions, if you keep them, that proves something about you. What does he say it proves? It proves that you are what? A disciple of Jesus. It proves it by nature. That you are already actively, presently his disciple. A disciple being a student or an apprentice, which is what we're all called to be in the gospel. Do you notice what he says doesn't prove that you're a disciple of Jesus? He, he doesn't, well, I prayed a prayer that a pastor told me to pray after one service, and I, ah, that's my proof. No. Or he doesn't say, oh, I got a great, great granddaddy who was a preacher once. I got preaching in my heritage. I'm good with the guy. Or, or, or he doesn't say, well, well, I went up as a five-year-old at an altar call. Those are my proofs. No, the proof here that Jesus says, what proves that we're his disciples is that we're abiding in his word. That we're in it. That we're remaining in it. That it surrounds us. It surrounds our thoughts and it informs our life. And he says there's a result when that happens. He says there's, there's something that comes about in you. What is the result when we abide in his word? We will know the what? The truth. So he's saying if we stay in his word, we will know the truth. In other words, his word is the truth. And that's well proven. Try it out. It self-attests to itself. Prove it in practice and in theory that Jesus' words are ultimately truth. And what happens when we know the truth? We're set free. The truth itself sets us free. The truth that is found in Jesus' words. When we know those words, which is the truth, we're set free. You know, I find it quite odd, though, that uh, we are currently in an historical moment with our society, the way it is in our culture, where truth itself is slavery. You can see it. In many circles that are growing in size and in influence, they just seem to keep getting louder and louder, that maybe they're just screaming louder. Truth itself is seen as another yoke. 
that it's another form of bondage that needs to be escaped from. I mean, that's, that's the argument today, right? Is that we need to be freed from truth. You know, there's, uh, this is actually just uh, an ideological movement that was started in the 1960s that then made its way into the academic arena and is now just full-fledged, openly working in our society's culture today. And it's, a, it's an ideological movement called postmodernism. You want to say that with me? Postmodernism. Obviously, that means after modernism. Well, in order for us to understand postmodernism, we need to know what modernism is. The cultural era of modernism itself started in about the 1600s, and it's basically that era of time where there was this commitment to certainty. Like you could know, and you could know that you knew. Right? It was this commitment to objectivity in truth itself, that truth could be known, and there'd be a unity, that we could share a unity in our share conviction about that truth. And the, the, this, this modern idea of that there is this master story above ours, that truth was a thing. So, for example, uh, I am making a truth statement. I am wearing a gray jacket. Would you agree with that truth? Some of you didn't answer. I... Should be able to see gray, though. <laughs> you think that's true because the statement itself corresponds to the way things really are, right? Postmodernism rejects that. Truth is now simply just whatever works for us. So this era of postmodernism celebrates distrust. It, it celebrates ambiguity and, and a multiplicity of subjective stories. That there's multiple truths, not just a higher one. There's a guy... I'm not even going to try to say his name. Jean-Francois Leotard. I was reading an essay about him, and apparently he defined postmodernism as incredulity toward meta-narratives. Let me define that for you. He's saying that this error, this cultural moment, is defined by the inability to believe a story that is above our story. It's the inability to believe in some sort of objective truth. In other words, in our culture today, there seems to be no thing like truth with a big T. And you can see it in all the TV shows, you can see it in all the movies, you can see it happening in courts, you can see it happening in sports. All of us have been deeply affected by this mindset. You, and, and I'll say, I'm not... Again, I don't care about being political, but you see this in the sexual revolution. And you can see it when people say that two plus two equals four is a bigoted thing. If it wants to be five, it can be. Today, truth itself is seen as a form of bondage that we need to be freed from. But Jesus, the greatest philosopher the greatest thinker and teacher said that being convinced of the truth, 
that's found in his word is our pathway to freedom, not slavery. But you know, if he's offering freedom at the end of this, if he's saying you will be set free, what does that already assume about our condition? That we're slaves. That we're enslaved. If we need freedom, that means we're already under some form of bondage. We're already oppressed. In fact, the the words that Jesus uses here are used elsewhere in the New Testament, and the picture is being set free from slavery. And that's exactly how the Jews take it when he says this, right? They, they show that in the understanding when how they respond. Look at verse 33, if you would. This is what they say back to him. Well, we are descendants of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we will become free? Like, if we've never been enslaved, why are you offering it? Here's where they think they're good. They think they've got everything under control. They're, you know, they're descendants of Father Abraham, right? They're of the Jewish ethnicity. They've got, they've got everything going for them. But Jesus points to a very real and a very spiritual form of slavery that unfortunately he puts it in the way that is a universal human reality. Look at verse 34. And uh, if you have a seatbelt, you might want to put it on now. Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. That makes a nice little coffee mug verse, doesn't it? Coffee. I'm a slave to sin. That's great. Some of your translations might just say, like, if anyone sins. Other translations might say, if you practice sin. This says commit sin. The Greek word just simply, if you do sin. If you do a sin, and the sin here is singular, it's not plural. If you do a sin, Jesus says that that indicates that you're a slave of sin. Now, uh, you're probably thinking right now, all right, Pastor Scott, this is Easter, man. Come on. You're supposed to be telling me of this new life. You're calling me a slave to sin. That's not very comfortable for me. All right, I'm just going to say, those are in red letters in my Bible. Uh, I mean... I'll agree, it's, good, it's a good word, uh, just don't crucify me for it. He, he already died for this. So, And remember, Jesus literally started out this passage with saying, if you remain in my word, if you hang in there, if you stay in it, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. As hard as this reality is, The reality is that the truth is that we're slave of sin. Which means that sin just simply isn't like an action. It's not like, oops, I slapped someone in the face. Or, oops, I I, I robbed this person. No, no. Sin is in Scripture also seen as the spiritual force that dominates our thoughts and our desires. It leads us to go astray. We're enslaved to its, its mastery. In other words, we're kind of saying that we're not sinners because we sin. We're, we sin because we're already in this state of being enslaved to sin. That's what Scripture says, that without Christ Jesus, that's our plight. 
But you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that I have to work too hard to convince you of that, though, do I? It's, it's why when, uh, when someone steals your parking spot at church, you might have this inclination to raise a particular finger at them. Or it's why when you, um, you trip across some shoes in the night that your spouse left there, you get really angry at them. That's not from personal story. I'm the one who leaves the shoes out. She's good. It's why we feel so poked by that. It's why, it's why people's opinions and the, their approval of us affect us so much. It's intrinsic to the human identity that after the fall, because of Adam, we're enslaved to missing the mark. We're enslaved to brokenness. It's this force that, without Christ, is, is the ruling, dominating authority over everything in us. Over everything we think, love, say, and do. And the hardest part about this is that it's not something we stumble into. It's something we're born into. If you don't believe me there, let me just make a quick, simple observation. Uh, go with me to the grocery store. And we'll find a little four-year-old kid in the grocery line, like rolling around on the floor like it's a feral cat, biting its mom's ankles, screaming out, but I want it! But I want it! Uh, and, and all of us know that. Some of us have been there. And everybody else watching just says, Lord, help that mom. Did the mom teach that kid how to be so selfish? If she did, then we've got We've got major problems there, right? Parenting classes on the ready. Did the, did the mom or dad most likely teach that kid how to be so selfish and angry? No. No, 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 no. That, that, that came stock from the manufacturer. It, it actually, but the designer didn't put that in there. It wasn't designed that way from the beginning. But we're born with it. It's as heartbreaking as it is, it's the ruling force of our hearts. And, and you know what's so ironic? In light of freedom, the way that we perceive freedom, the way that so many people picture freedom, is that freedom itself is the throwing off of all restraints, of all obstacles, and just doing everything you want to do. That freedom, freedom is being able to do everything you want to do, regardless of the consequences, just like that little kid screaming in, the aisle, right? He's free. In the same way, we can say, well, I just, I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, and I want to be as lazy as I want to be, and I want to leave my marriage whenever I want to leave it, and I want to drink as much as I want, I want to eat as much as I want, I want to smoke as much as I want, I want to take whatever I want, I want to inject whatever I want, I want to mock whatever I want, I want to talk about whoever I want, and I want to live it up as much as I want. To some, that sounds like freedom. Oh, but that's not freedom. That's actually slavery. You see, you're doing that because you're simply acting out of the slavery to those passions and lusts that are the ruling authority of sin that just are being demanded of us by our master. 
One commentator on this passage said it this way. His name's D.A. Carson. He said, For Jesus, then, the ultimate bondage is vicious slavery to moral failure, to rebellion against the God who has made us. The tyrannical master is shameful self-centeredness, an evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the Creator. And if you sin, you're just simply proving the deeper reality about your nature. That without Christ, you are slave to it. Now again, again, just careful, careful here. How are you responding to this right now? What do you, what do you feel triggered in your heart? How, do you, how are you responding to that diagnosis of the universal human condition since the fall? And, and, and by the way, uh, if you thought that was harsh, I'm just going to say, Jesus' words don't get any easier here. To these supposed believers, he goes on to say that their father's the devil, that they want to do what Satan wants them to do, that they aren't from God, or else they would listen to and believe Jesus. And then in verse 55, he says that they don't even know God. Easter Sunday... So I just need to make a note. Does it seem like Jesus' main concern here was to please man or to cater his language to not being offensive? No, he's, he's not trying to please people here. He's of the Old Testament prophets in a similar way. He's not trying to grow this large gathering, this large following. He just speaks truth to honor his Father and God. Oh, but you can see some of today in this text still, because how do those who are offended respond? Look at verse 48 real quick. They call him what? They, well, now, is it not true that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? He's a half-breed, rejected Samaritan, and he's possessed of the devil. That sounds like some of the really loud screamers in some, some gatherings these days. Isn't that like the norm? Someone speaks something that is offensive, and the response is to name call, is to group label, and to speak demeaningly in return. We see it here. Oh, and then not only that, look at verse 59. What do they do when they get really offended? They pick up stones to throw at Jesus. Oh, that's just the ancient version of cancel culture. Get him out of here. He's done. Like, let me just say this. Would you get mad at the doctor for diagnosing you rightly with cancer? How dare you? Or would you try to find healing that the doctor's offering? Would you try to find the freedom from it that he's holding out? Well, Jesus here is diagnosing the human condition, and he's offering at the same time freedom from that condition, freedom from slavery to sin, and all of its consequences which ultimately lead to death, and they want to kill him for it. Kill him for offering them freedom? The freedom that they really need, which, again, by the way, we haven't even talked about what freedom is in the positive. We've only talked about it in the negative. What does it even mean to be free? Like really free indeed. Well, simply put, freedom is not the freedom to do as you want, but the freedom to do as you ought. 
to do as we should. That's, I mean, that was conversations philosophers like Aristotle were having many years ago. And you can go to Lewis, you can find that same thing. You can see it in Scripture, what happens when we're really free. Like freedom is really doing what we were made to do. It's the ability to actually say no to anything that's going to hinder that, which is our enjoyment of and worship of God. The, the word of God spoken by Jesus sets us free from sin to enjoy God. It removes the chains of sin and it, and it gives us the freedom and the identity of a son and daughter. And you know, at the end of that freedom is not destruction. There's life eternal. It doesn't, it doesn't rob you of life. It doesn't destroy or it doesn't injure others or spoil yourself. We really, really need to be free in that regard. And Jesus says he's offering it. In fact, he says it twice. He mentions it twice in this dialogue with these people. You see it in verse 32, right? He says, when you, when you know the truth, the, the truth will set you what? Free. But then look at verse 36. He says, there's something else that sets you free. What is it? Verse 36. Now it's if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. So in verse 32, the truth sets us free. In verse 36, the Son sets you free. Well, you know, as Christians, that makes perfect sense. Why? Because Jesus isn't speaking of truth as if it's something outside of him. He is the truth itself. Remember he said that? I am the way, the, and the life. This is distinctly Christian. This is the truth that Jesus himself is the truth. He is the objective reality to our personal reality. So therefore then, that means that real freedom isn't found in some sort of concept or force that's called truth somewhere outside of Jesus. But here's the reality, and if you're going to get something today, it better be this. That real freedom is found in Jesus himself. It's, 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 it's why we remain in his word. It's, it's why we believe like Abraham believed. It's, it's why we love him. And you know what's so crazy is that that's exactly why he says what he says at the end of this exchange. What's really going to show that we have been set free. Verse 51. Check this out. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. All right, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold the phone. Give me a second. Wait. So if we, by faith, abide in Jesus' word, and it abides in us, if we're convinced of the things that he says, that they're good, they're true, they're right, that proves that we're his disciples. We saw that. That causes us to know the truth. We saw that. And that truth itself will set us free that real freedom is something that we really desperately need, this here says, well then, goodness, at the end of that, we won't even taste death. We won't taste its bitterness. We'll be free of death. Isn't death the most severe indication 
of a broken world. Those of you who have recently gone through the loss of a loved one, you know that. You know what, though? You might think he's crazy. I mean, they did. They thought the dude was loony. Right? That he says, anybody who, who keeps my word where the truth is, he'll never taste death. And they're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now we know you're, you've lost it. Right? Father Abraham died. So did the prophets. Are you greater than them? What's the answer, church? Oh, I don't believe you. What's the answer, church? Of course Jesus is is better than Abraham, greater than he. In fact, Abraham, it said that he rejoiced to see Jesus' day. And he saw it and was overjoyed. How? Well, because Abraham believed. Abraham believed God and that kind of faith credited him life-giving righteousness that though Abraham died, he never saw permanent death. He saw Jesus. Abraham saw Jesus. Hmm. All right, so then then what's the connection here? How does does abiding in Jesus' word, believing like Abraham did, how does that allow us to escape death? That's because truth himself, with unstoppable love in his heart, subjected himself to the very same bondage that we were in. He subjected himself to our sin and our death. He became sin for us. He suffered death on the cross. And then after both of those things, he just decided, all right, I've done it. I'm getting up now. I'm rising from the dead, which, which means he utterly demolished sin and death's reign. And Scripture says that because he lives, he'll never die again. And as we abide in his word, as we follow him as his disciples, we follow him through death into new resurrection life where we're freed of all of the oppression that's within us, every yoke and every bondage, forever. Guys, this is the gospel. This is is at the heart of it all, that you and I, only by faith, we're, we're bound with Christ, we're united to him, we're found in him. And that means that as we're in him, he goes to the cross where he dies and Scripture says that we die with him. Our old self that was enslaved to sin as its master, it dies. Sin loses its power over its ability to have the final say in everything that we think, say, love, and do. And not only that, we follow Jesus into the grave. And and then there, out of the grave, we're raised to walk with him in newness of life. Sin has lost all of its mastery over us as Christians. And death no longer rules over us either because it no longer rules over him. That's why he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus dies for sin. We die to sin. Jesus rises to life. We rise with him. Forever, forever free to live for God. And that freedom that he's holding out to us this morning, 
that we so desperately craved. It's found on the other side of the cross and the tomb. Will you follow him there? So that truly, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Would you guys bow your heads real quick? You see, I, I, I uh, would not be surprised if there were some of you here this morning who know very well what it feels like and, and, and what it looks like in life to be enslaved to so many destructive things. Trust me, I know how, how difficult it is constantly struggling with guilt constantly hiding away in shame, not actually able to be free to be who you are because who you are is too shameful to reveal. And you never realize that what Christ was holding out to you wasn't just a moral code to live by, but it was freedom. It's life forever enjoying God to do what you were made to do, be who you were made to be, because you're not quite there yet. We only find ourselves truly whenever we find God. And so maybe this morning you're wanting the freedom and you've been trying to find it in so many things that just aren't working for you. Freedom from the pain of this life by trying to drown it in the bottle. Freedom from the pain of rejection by taking on too many poor relationships that all you do is just feel used and abused and left alone. If you want to be freed of that, the only place you will find it is in the truth that is found in the person of the Son of God, Jesus, the risen Savior. And so if you're tired of living far from God, if you're tired of trying to fight for freedom with chains still shackled on your heart, Jesus is offering right now to come into your heart and to unleash those chains set you free from that tyrannical master that keeps destroying you along the way. And you don't have to earn it. You don't have to try to wait till you're good enough to have him come in. He's already, he's already knocking right now because he loves you. He cares about you. And he's done everything necessary for you. The only posture you need to take is to receive it. If you want your chains, you can have them. But you've already said, I want to be free. The problem is too many of us see our life as too normal that we don't know that we're in shackles. But today can be the day where you're seeing something new. And today can be, now can be the moment where you're inviting Jesus to come release you from your chains, 
If you would follow him to the cross and through the grave, there's new life and freedom waiting on the other side. If that is you today, I would just ask, we just want to kind of see a word of testimony. If you would just raise your hand if that's you. Praise God. For those of you who have been walking with Jesus for some time, you're, you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus because you are abiding in his word. Did you notice the connection here then? That the sin that you still struggle with, though it is not a master over you, that the reason why you struggle with it is because you don't have full truth in your heart yet? The reason why you struggle with lust is not a disease problem, it's a truth problem. The reason why you struggle with pride is because you're convinced of lies. And God sent his spirit to fill you and to lead you into all truth. So your best relationship right now, this very moment, is to interact with the spirit of God who is ready and able to remind you of Jesus' word, to speak truth into the deepest broken places in your heart that are still under renovation by God's grace. If you struggle with loneliness as a believer, that's a truth problem. Pray that God's spirit would convince you of what's true and therefore when he does, you will be free indeed. Free to love God. Free to love people. Freed up to do what your Father asks of you. So this morning, I would just encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you're reflecting on whatever kind of form of bondage you feel like you're in, that you can sense in your own heart struggles that keep coming up and rearing their ugly head, I would encourage you, pray that God would speak truth into your heart and you will find freedom because that's now where Jesus occupies. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I can tell that this is a hard word for many of us. I don't think that too many of us like being uh, called out. I know I don't. But Father, I, I know that your spirit can guard and defend your word where the seeds have truly been sown. You can protect. You can clear the soil so that it would fall on good ground and bear much fruit in keeping with righteousness. So God, I pray that your word would fall on all hearts that have been prepared by you, cultivated with good soil. Father, I thank you that you did not leave us in our state, but you sent your son to be our liberator, our Messiah, God, we thank you that he offered himself up 
in the most cruel way to go to the cross and endure your wrath and the crucifixion of men. And we thank you that in his last breath, he said it is finished and every sin has been covered and accounted for and paid in full. But God, that was a check that needed to clear. And his resurrection showed that it cleared the bank. And we thank you for the new life that we find in Christ. For the freedom that is there with him. God, I pray for that this morning there would be people who, honestly God, would now start to be terrified of living life apart from you. Because now they know the true condition of their problems isn't outside of them, it's within their own hearts. And I pray, God, that today would be the day where they're willing to confess, yeah, that I'm I'm my biggest problem. And that they would surrender themselves to you. And in surrender, there's freedom. And I pray that many would come to that faith in your son today, that today would be the day many begin to abide in your word. For those of us who are, would you continue to implant your word deep into our hearts so that we would know truth that sets us free, that we would know the Son who sets us free. God, we love you. This is just so good. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you from Hebrews 13. Before I do, I would just say, I know it's Easter Sunday. You probably have some lunch plans. Feel free to hang out. You don't got to buzz off too quickly. Try to meet somebody you don't know. Would love that. And you heard the invitation from my wife. Uh, We're a church that has its arms wide open. Come on in. We'd love to have you. Here's the prayer of benediction from Hebrews 13. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, he is risen. risen Love you guys. Have an incredible week. Be blessed.